Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Ezekiel 40. So you guys want to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices. That's the devices you can turn there um, to Ezekiel chapter 40. So we're at the end of Ezekiel. Of course, there's eight chapters now um, in the last, you know, this last portion of Ezekiel. And these are eight chapters of nothing but prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. And I believe, and we'll look at it this morning, but I believe they're to be fulfilled during the millennium, the 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. And uh, chapters 40 to 42, which we'll look at this morning, um, Ezekiel is given the, the measurements and the plans for a new temple that's going to exist in the millennium. Chapters 43 through 46 deal with new worship that's going to occur in the millennium. And chapters 47 through 48 deal with the division of the land of Israel during the millennium. Now, there's many different theories about this passage of Ezekiel that we're going to be looking at this morning. And, uh, you know, it's understandably so, because this is a very difficult passage of Scripture. These next eight passages, uh, there's a lot of differing opinions about it. I'm just giving you one opinion based on what I believe, and, and I'm going to hopefully back it up with Scripture. I would encourage you, and if you don't believe the same way, that's cool. There's no, this isn't a salvation issue. This is just future prophecy. And none of us know it right, like this is exactly what it's going to be. We'll find out when we're there, right? We'll find out when it occurs. But based on the Bible, I'm going to give you as, as good of an interpretation or, or an understanding of it as possible. But don't take my word for it. Go home, study this, you know, dig it in, dig into yourself, or uh, dig into yourself, dig into the word yourself and, uh, and see, you know, be a Berean. So I want to encourage you with that. Now, some of the differing opinions, there's questions that are raised up. First of all, is Ezekiel in these next chapters being given plans for the next temple to be built after they return from exile? Because remember, Ezekiel's in Babylon at the time. You know, is, is God just saying, well, this is the next temple that you're going to build when you come back into the land? And the answer is no. And the reason why is because the measurements of this temple that we're going to look at this morning, they don't even come close to the measurements of the temple that was built when the exiles returned from captivity. Another uh, thing that people do with these scriptures, because they are difficult scriptures to, to, to interpret and to, to go through, they think, well, this must be a symbolic. And these must be just not to be taken literally, but these are to be you know, symbolizing uh, an allegory, uh, so to speak. And again, my answer would be no. And the reason why my answer would be no to that is why would God give Ezekiel such minute de And believe me, we're going to be looking at some minute details this morning. In fact, you're probably going to start, hopefully you won't be nodding off, but you'll be like, man, I can't believe you're going through all that. Um, but very minute details. Why would God give that much minute in details to an allegory? That's my question. And then, even if it was that case, what would these details be symbolic of? I mean, you could really start getting into some really weird things, you know. Well, this means that. And, and so, I think we are only left with a literal interpretation 
And I think it's the safest interpretation to take of this. And some of it, and I'll be just frank with you, some of it we may not fully understand on this side of the millennium, on this side of of that age, the the age when Jesus Christ reigns on the earth. But we're going to do our best here this morning. So, When God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, slavery in Egypt, and while they wandered in the wilderness... God gave commands to Moses to build a tent, and it was called a tabernacle. And it was the place where God would meet with the children of Israel as they wandered through the land. And uh, that's kind of just a model there of what the tabernacle looked like. You know, if you go to Israel today, there's a place down in the desert uh, where you can actually go, and they have a a life-size replica like that of the tabernacle. You can go in there. You can see the the, the altar right in the front there, and uh, you can walk into the tent. It's a fascinating thing to do, and it's really a cool thing. Actually, the lady that runs that place, or the tour guide, she's a Messianic Jew. She's a believer in Jesus Christ. So when we went there, it was awesome. But anyways, um, the cool thing, or the, 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 the thing about this tabernacle was that it was collapsible. It was temporary because the children of Israel were wandering through the land, and so they would need to take it down, and uh, there was instructions on how to take it down and, and carry it with them so that wherever they ended up camping again, they would, you know, wherever God led them, they would set up the tabernacle again, and that's where God would meet with them. Um, many years later, after the children of Israel settled in the land, David, King David, wanted to build a temple. But God told him, no, through the prophet Nathan. And uh, God told Nathan to tell David, David, your hands are full of blood. You, you, you've been a warrior all your life. You're not going to build my temple. Your son is going to build a temple for me. And David, it was, in, it was a good thing that was in David's heart that he wanted to build a temple. Um, and, you know, David, with this word of the Lord that his son was going to build a temple, David started preparing and he started gathering things. When Solomon, his son, became king, Solomon, you know, he, he basically had all the supplies that his dad had collected over the years during his reign. And he basically, you know, hired people and, and started building it. And uh, it was really, it's really an interesting thing. So Solomon built what we call Solomon's Temple. And uh, Solomon's Temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And that was this time that we're reading right now when Ezekiel was in Babylon. In fact, he was in Babylon for about 12 years. The temple still stood in Jerusalem, but 12 years later, it was destroyed by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. When the children of Israel came back, you know, they were in, they were in Babylon for 70 years, and while they were in Babylon, uh, you know, God had spoken to them and given them words of prophecy through Isaiah and other prophets. And uh, when the end of the 70 years had elapsed, um, by that time, the Medo-Persian Empire had conquered the Babylonians. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, uh, decreed that the, that the Israelites could go back and rebuild their temple. And so... Um, the temple was built by Zerubbabel in the book, and you can read about it in the book of Ezra. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because when, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed Solomon's temple, 
He wiped out the land. He actually salted the land, salted the, the fields and everything so that they couldn't grow crops. When the, when, the, when the captives were released, the exiles, and they came back into the land, it was desolate. There were wild animals. The, you know, everything was overthrown. The, the temple was completely obliterated. And, uh, and so it was a tough thing for them to rebuild their temple. But they did that the best that they could. And they rebuilt the temple. And, uh, you know, the, the young people that had been born and raised in Babylon at the time, they were all excited about, man, we got, finally got our temple. We finally got our identity. We finally can worship the Lord and have him meet with us and everything. And the Bible says that those who were older, like probably, probably 80 years old or, or up, that were still alive, they were like 10, 15 years old when the, when the original, when Solomon's temple existed. And the Bible says they wept because the glory and the, and the, and the splendor of Solomon's temple, it was just, this was a, like a Mickey Mouse little outfit that these guys had built. It was just, it was nothing basically compared to Solomon's temple. But... A little later on, a few years later, in fact, many years later, Herod um, took that temple and he rebuilt that temple. And uh, he was a builder and he, he decked it out quite a bit. It was quite uh, a spectacular sight to see in those days. In fact, it was so magnificent looking that the disciples, the Bible records that the disciples were one day, they were with Jesus and they were at the temple and they started just talking about, look at the beauty of this temple. Look at those beautiful stones and the structures and everything. And in Luke 21, Jesus said, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And so Herod's temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by uh, the Romans under Titus Vespasian. And it literally, not one stone was left upon another. And the reason why was because there was all this gold inside the temple. And during the battle, uh, Titus... He didn't really want to destroy the temple, but during the battle, some soldier, because the, the Jews, they basically barricaded themselves in the temple and they wouldn't get, you know, they didn't want to get released. And uh, someone, and they think it was a Roman soldier, had shot or thrown a fire, you know, a, a torch or something into the temple and it caught on fire. And the fire burned. Of course, the people that were inside died. And the fire grew so so intense that the gold that on all the fixtures they melted between the cracks in the stones and so when they when the when the romans finally you know they finally wiped out the jews and they were taking it over they literally took the stones off one by one to get to extract the gold that was between the cracks and so god's word was fulfilled literally there in the destruction of herod's temple now the Bible teaches that there's going to be a third temple built, and it's either going to be built right before or right after the start of the seven-year tribulation. But then again, this temple that we're looking at this morning is not that temple. And the reason why is because the size alone makes it impossible. The complex that we're going to look at this morning that Ezekiel describes here covers 765,625 square feet of real estate. Just to give you a little idea, 13 football fields could fit inside of that complex. So we're not talking small, we're talking huge. And so I believe... Uh, like I said at the beginning here, this temple is another temple that's going to exist in the millennium. So verse 1, it says, 
In the 25th year of our captivity at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was captured, on the very same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. You know, uh, when when you're writing something like a journalist would, you know, basically you want to get all the facts down as soon as possible or you lose your audience. And and it's interesting, in these first few verses, we get the what, the where, the how, and the why, and and, and everything. And so... um, First of all, when did this take place? And it says here that the vision took place in the 25th year of the captivity, um, and that would have been the captivity of Jehoiachin, who was brought out of Israel, and Ezekiel was taken along with him, along with others, and uh, they were taken captive to Babylon. So uh, uh, Ezekiel and those, they were in, in Babylon for about 12 years, and then the temple was destroyed. And so 14 years later is when this vision, the temple had been destroyed for 14 years now, and that's when this vision, uh, Ezekiel is given this vision when he receives this vision. And we're even told that it was on at the beginning of the year on the 10th day of the month. Now, uh, the Jews have two new years one is a legal new year. It's called Tisri. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's around September. And uh, the 10th day of that month is actually a day of atonement. Um, but then there's also the ecclesiastical or the spiritual new year, when the start of all the festivals, and it's Nisan, and it's around March. And uh, that would make, the 10th day of that month would make it Passover. Uh, so very interesting. Most Bible scholars believe that this vision was given to Ezekiel on Passover. Um, now, as mentioned earlier, as we get into these next few chapters, it's going to seem very tedious regarding the measurements of this future temple, and we'll talk about that when we get uh, towards the end of our study here this morning. Verse 2, In the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. On it toward the south was something like the structure of a city. Do you recall back earlier in, in Ezekiel's, you know, his ministry where God takes Ezekiel in a previous vision back to Jerusalem? It's, you know, it's a, it's a vision. He's taken in spirit. He's not physically t- taken there. But he's taken back to uh, the temple as it stands at the time. And, and he takes Ezekiel back behind closed doors and he sees the abomination, the idolatry that the priests were doing at the time. Well, in this vision, God is taking Ezekiel into the land of Israel, back toward, back to Jerusalem, but this time he's being carried forward into the future. And you might say, well, that sounds like you know, one of those Steven Spielberg movies, you know, Back to the Future, what's going on here? Well, think about this, or understand this, I should say. God exists outside of time and space. We exist in time and we exist in space. God exists outside of time and space. The Bible tells us that He knew you and I before we were even born. He saw us when we were being formed in the womb. The Bible says that He sees the future from the beginning. So it's not 
difficult. In fact, it's nothing for God to transport Ezekiel to a future time and a future place. And here we see that Ezekiel says that uh, God took him in a vision and set him on a very high mountain. Now, if you've ever been to Jerusalem or you know the topography of Jerusalem, it actually is sitting in a mountain, you know, Mount Moriah, basically. Um, and there is a high mountain nearby. And, and some people think, well, Ezekiel must have been taken to Mount Scopus where he had a view of the temple. Um, And uh, I've stated earlier that I believe that this temple exists in the millennium. And if you understand the scriptures, the prophecies regarding the millennium, the landscape of the earth is going to be drastically changed during the millennium. Uh, Last week we talked about the the battle, the great battle in Ezekiel uh, 38 and 39. And at the end of that battle, as we read last week, there's going to be a great earthquake. Uh, during the tribulation in Revelation chapter 13, there's a, there's a description of a great earthquake where a tenth of the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And Revelation 16 describes an earthquake. Now, whether they're the same ones or not, we won't get into that this morning. But Revelation 16 describes an earthquake that will divide the city of Jerusalem into three parts. And the cities of the nations will fall. And not only that, but Zechariah 14.4 tells us that Jesus, at the end of the tribulation, he's going to set foot on Mount Olives. Remember, remember he ascended from Mount Olives when he was with his disciples? He had been on the earth for four, after he rose from the dead. He was with his disciples for 40 days. Many people saw him. At one time, there were 500 people at once that saw him. And uh, he ate with them. Uh, he was physically, bodily resurrected. And... At the end of 40 days, as the disciples and him were standing on Mount, Mount of Olives, he ascended into heaven. And remember the angel said, hey, you know, why are you staring up into the heaven? This same Jesus that you saw ascend into heaven will one day descend just as you saw him go. He left from Mount, uh, Mount of Olives. Well, at the end of the tribulation, he's going to descend back onto the Mount of Olives. But the Bible says in Zechariah 14, 4, that when he touches foot, on the Mount of Olives, there's going to be such a great earthquake that's never existed before, and the Mount of Olives is going to split in two. So all that to say is that the landscape at the time of the millennium is going to be vastly different than what we know it to be today. And so this very high mountain, I'll be honest with you, I don't think this mountain exists at this day. But it will exist And I believe Jerusalem is going to be sitting on top of this mountain. And I believe, and you can dig into the scriptures yourself to to, to look for yourself, but I believe that that's going to be the highest mountain on the face of the earth. That all the other mountains are going to be flattened and brought low, and Jerusalem, the mountain with, with with the temple on it, it's going to be the highest mountain on the earth. And the reason why I say that is because of Micah's prophecy and that's not Jan's son who's prophesying. This is Micah in the Bible. But Micah 4.1 says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so I believe this, this, this mountain doesn't exist today, but it will exist. And, that, and Jerusalem is going to be the high point on the earth where Jesus Christ is going to reign and rule uh, for a thousand years. Verse 3, 
He took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. Now, we don't know exactly who this person is, but I believe this is an angel. I don't believe this is Jesus, um, but again, you can dig into the Scriptures and, and look for yourself. But this angel, or this, this man who has the appearance of bronze, he has measuring instruments in his hands. One is a line of flax, and I looked that up, and a line of flax is basically, uh, it, it's, it's just a big, long, flexible line that's used for measuring greater distances, or large, long distances, and he also had a rod in his hand. And as we go through some of the stuff, if you have a new or a King James, it's a, it's called a reed, but basically it's, it's a rod or a reed. And that was used for measuring smaller distances. Verse four. And the man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and fix your mind on everything I show you, for you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything you see. So not only we're told when, we're not, we're not only told what, but now we're told why Ezekiel is given this vision. And the reason why is that God wants Ezekiel to record everything that he sees, everything that he hears, and the whole purpose is to declare back to the captives of Israel everything that he's been given in this vision. Why is God doing that? The reason why is God is comforting his people in their present affliction. You know, he is providing them hope for the future. And if you think about it, the surviving remnant of God's people there in Babylon, they've lost everything. They've lost home. They've lost the you know there's no more priests i mean there there's people that are priests ezekiel was a priest but the, the priesthood isn't in operation there in babylon there's no place where god's meeting with them there's no temple the temple's been destroyed they've probably even lost family members during the the rome or during the the, the siege of jerusalem in fact during that time there was massive starvation because the babylonians they they built a siege around the city and for i think it was like 18 months or so there was no food and no water coming into the city and so you know these people have been through a tremendous amount of of trials and difficulties and afflictions and god in his mercy is providing them with hope because they were aliens in a foreign land and they needed hope. And God in His mercy, man, He, he sent them hope through this vision. Verse 5, Now there was a wall around the outside of the temple. <clears throat> in the man's hand was a measuring rod, six cubits long, each being a cubit and a hand breadth, and he measured the width of the structure, one rod, and the height, one rod. So as we get into this the scriptures here, the, these next verses, he's going to be measuring everything in rods or cubits. And so now we're giving, given what that measurement is. And uh, so this rod is six cubits long. Now, the cubit, he says here, it's being a, hand, a cubit and a hand breath. So what are we talking about? Well, in olden days, of course, they didn't have tape measures. They didn't have, you know, fancy measuring things. So basically what they did was they measured a cubit and they basically said it was the, the length from your elbow, from a man's elbow to this, to his fingertips. 
And uh, that, you know, is roughly 18 inches. Of course, it would vary between the people, right? And then so you add to that, that was a cubit, and you add to that a hand breadth. And as you see in the image there, a hand breadth is right across the palm of your hand. So then again, you know, depending on if you have big or small hands, that, that could vary. But we're talking roughly, roughly about 21 inches is a cubit and a hand breadth. And so a rod which was six cubits would be roughly, again, 10.5 feet. So you kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we're going through these passages, of these, these measurements. It kind of gives you an idea of the scope. Now, what I did was uh, I came across some computer graphics on the Internet, and uh, uh, it's uh, from this website. And uh, they take these measurements, and they take these descriptions, and they plugged it into a computer program, and they came up with a graphical representation of the temple. Now, before I show you the pictures, this is just a disclaimer. Uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, it's there what they think it might look like. The, the measurements, I think, are accurate. But as far as the, you know, exactly what the structure looks like, uh, we don't know. Of course, nobody knows, right? So just bear that in mind as we go through it. But I hopefully it will at least give you a little bit of an idea. So, verse 5 says, Now there was a wall all around the outside of the temple, in the man's hand was a measuring rod six cubits long, each being a cubit and a handbreadth. And he measured the width of the wall structure, one rod, and the height, one rod. So you get the, the measurements there. So this wall around there is 10.2 feet roughly uh, high and, and wide, I guess, if you want to call it that, the height and the breadth. Verse 6, Then he went to the gateway which faced east, and he went up its stairs and measured the threshold of the gateway, which was one rod wide, and the other threshold was one rod wide. So you see the red there, and uh, we're not going to go as in detail for each picture, but to give you an idea, what they did in their program is the red is what they're talking about in the verse. So this is the threshold as you enter into the gateway. If you look further down that, that gateway to, into the building there, uh, there's another red stripe. That's the other threshold. That's what he's talking about there. And those were a rod or a reed wide as it shows in the, in the picture. Each gate chamber, verse 7, was one rod long and one rod wide. Between the gate chambers was a space of five cubits, and the threshold of the gateway by the vestibule on the inside of the gate was one rod. He also measured the vestibule of the inside gate, one rod. Then he measured the vestibule of the gateway, eight cubits, and the gate post, two cubits. The vestibule was on the gate. Uh, of the gate was on the inside. See, if we weren't looking at anything and I was just reading this, you'd be like going, you know, so I, don't, I wanted to give you a little bit of graphics here. Um, in the eastern gateway, there were gate chambers, or three gate chambers, excuse me, on one side and three on the other. Uh, the three were all the same size. Also, the gate posts were of the same size on this side and on that side. He measured the width of the entrance to the gateway 10 cubits and the length of the gate 13 cubits. There was a space in front of the gate, uh, in front of the gate chambers, excuse me, one cubit on this side and one cubit on that side. The gate chambers were six cubits on this side and six cubits on that side. Then he measured the gateway from the roof of one gate chamber to the roof of the other, the width was 25 cubits uh, as door faces door. 
He measured the gateposts, 60 cubits high, and the cord all around the gateway extended to the gatepost. So you get this idea, this gate, this thing's a massive structure in and of itself. This is just one of the gates that enter into the city, uh, about, what, 100 feet high. From the front of the entrance gate to the front of the vestibule, the inner gate was 50 cubits. There were beveled window frames in the gate chambers and in their intervening archways on the inside of the gateway all around. And likewise, in the vestibules, there were windows all around on the inside. And on the gatepost were palm trees. Whether they look like that, who knows. Then he brought me into the outer court. So as you, as you enter into those gates... Um, you, you enter into the outer court of this temple complex here. Verse uh, 17, And there were chambers and a pavement made all around the court. Thirty chambers face the pavement. Now, one thing I want to just mention to you, that in here where the words are in the Bible say chamber, they've interpreted to say dining rooms. And... Uh, uh, I, I don't know that that's the case. The Hebrew word is lishka, and it's, uh, it's basically an unused, unused word nowadays, but it means a room in a building, whether for storage, for eating, or for lodging. So it may or may not be a dining room. So just bear that in mind as you're going through this. Um, but, I, you know, but my whole reason was wanting to give you kind of a, kind of a visual concept of what we're talking about. Verse 18, the pavement was by the side of the gateways corresponding to the length of the gateways. This was the lower pavement. Then he measured the width from the front of the lower gateway to the front of the inner court exterior, 100 cubits toward the east and the north. On the outer court was also a gateway facing north, and he measured its length and its width, its gate chambers, three on this side and three on that side. Its gate posts and its archways had the same measurements as the first gate. Aren't you glad he said that? You know, and then he goes in and he gives them. But it's like, okay, it's the same measurement as the other gate. And you can see it there. There's the, uh, there's the outer gate, the one in red. And then just to the left of the screen there is the, the inner gate, going, allowing you to go into the inner court. So because he says, hey, this is the same measurement as the others, we're going to skip down. Down. And you can go ahead and read that on your own if you want. But we're going to skip, skip down basically because these gates are identical in dimensions. Uh, so jump down to verse 24. After that, he brought me toward the south, and there were a gateway, and there a gateway was facing south. And he measured its gateposts and archways according to these same measurements. Thank you, Ezekiel. Um, these three gates, north, south, and east, are where one would enter into this temple complex from the outside. You'd be coming into this, this outer court area. And across the outer court area, just opposite of these gates, are another set of gates. As that's what this is, is showing. So as you pass from one gate, you're entering into the outer court there. As you pass through the next gate, you're entering into the inner court area. Now, verses 28 through 37 describe these gates, and guess what? They're identical in dimension to the outer gates. Um, now, we looked at this slide earlier, but uh, just want to kind of show you what we're talking about just to kind of put it in perspective. And uh, so 
when we're talking about the inner gates, and I'm going to try something here for just a second. Let's see if it works. When we're talking about the inner gate, we're talking right there. Are you seeing that? Oh, yeah, you are. Cool. Okay, this is fun. So anyway, so those are the inner gates, and they're just opposite. Well, I could do like a Don Madden thing now. Um, and I won't, but anyways. John Madden. Sorry. <laughs> what? For me, it'd be Don Madden, yeah. Okay. Um, there is one difference between the outer gates and the inner gates. And the one di- difference is uh, the outer gates... They have seven steps. Now, whether that's significant or not, seven in the Bible is the number of completion. Those inner gates going into the inner courtyard have eight steps. And eight in the Bible is the number of new beginnings. And so if you want a spiritual application, I can spiritualize it. Um, Maybe, maybe this is just a reminder that in order to draw closer to the Lord, closer to that inner place there, uh, you must continually step up. You must continually ascend rather than just walking over at the same level. And I think of us in, in our walks with the Lord, you know. Um, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You know, we're to continually be growing and being more used by the Lord and being more like Him. Uh, Paul also wrote, uh, which I think we should have the same attitude in Philippians 3.12. He says, Not that I have already attained or I am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, you look at your life today and you, you, you think back to where you were a year ago, and let me ask you this, rhetorically, of course. Are you more like Jesus this today than you were a year ago? Are you, you stayed the same or are you less like Jesus this, you know, a year from a year ago? It's a good barometer, you know, we're to examine ourselves and find out how we're doing and, and this is a good way. You know, have I grown in the Lord over this last year? Verse 38. There was a chamber and its entrance by the gatepost of the gateway where they washed the burnt offering. Now, here again, uh, a chamber, they've got dining rooms. It may not be necessarily a dining room. Verse 39. In the vestibule of the gateway, there were two tables on this side and two tables on that side on which to slay the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. At the outside of the vestibule, as one goes up to the entrance of the northern gateway, were two tables. And on the other side of the vestibule of the gateway were two tables. Four tables were on this side, four tables on that side. By the side of the gateway, eight tables on which they slaughtered the sacrifices. And there were also four tables of hewn stone for the burnt offering, one cubit and a half long, one cubit and a half wide, and one cubit high. On these they laid the instruments with which they slaughtered the burnt offering and the sacrifice. Inside were hooks a handbreadth wide, fastened all around, and the flesh of the sacrifices was on the tables. Now when we get to this portion here, this is what trips people up when they're reading these these the scriptures because we're talking about blood sacrifices and we're talking about blood sacrifices 
in the millennium. A lot of people at this point go, well, this has to be spiritual. There has to, this has to be an allegory because why would you have blood sacrifices when Jesus already died on the cross, paid the price for our sins? Why, why would they do that? And so this really messes up people. But I think the only way that this can be understood is by you and I understanding the function of the Old Testament sacrifices. You see, the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they never took away sins. All what they did was they atoned or they covered over the sins. And that's why in Hebrews 10, 4, it says it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. That's why the Levitical sacrifices need to be repeated year after year after year because they never took away the sins. They just covered over the sins. And the Levitical sacrifices under the Old Covenant, they were there on purpose to point the Jewish person to the need for a substitutionary sacrifice for his sins, right? Because he would take a spotless, blemished, unblemished, innocent animal, and he would bring it to the temple, and he would lay his hands on the sacrifice. And as he laid his hands on the sacrifice, he was acknowledging that he was transferring his guilt onto this innocent animal. And this innocent animal, its throat would be slit. Blood would be poured. The animal would die, giving its life. And, and as that took place, um, this person who had laid his hands on the animal who, was, who he was bringing to the temple for the offering, he had to trust that his sin was atoned for by or covered over by the death of that innocent animal. And they had to do that year in and year out, over and over and over again. And God was trying to tell the, teach the people uh, that he was basically pointing to Jesus Christ in the new covenant, right? That innocent, spotless Lamb of God who took our sins upon himself and died in place of our, died on a cross in my place and in your place and his blood not only atoned, it not only covered our sin, but the Bible says our, it washed away our sins. And so, you know, as you read in Hebrews 10, it tells us that we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You don't have to get born again, again, and again. Jesus Christ paid the price once and for all. Verse 12 tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, but this man after he, but this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So why do we have sacrifices in the millennial temple? That's a question. It's a good question. I'm going to give you what I think is a possible reason. So this is the millennium. This is when Jesus Christ reigns physically on the earth, rules over the nations for a thousand years. During that time, it's a time like we've never experienced before. All of our presidents have been trying to get peace in the Middle East. They're never going to get peace in the Middle East until the Prince of Peace comes, until Jesus Christ comes. And during that millennium, wars are going to cease. There's going to be true peace and true prosperity that will reign during that period. And for a thousand years, there's two types of people that are going to inhabit the earth. There's going to be Christians in their glorified bodies who returned with Jesus Christ to reign and rule with them. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 6.3. And then there's going to be people who made it through the Great Tribulation without dying, and they're going to continue to bear children. In fact, you can read that in Isaiah chapter 65. Now, these sacrifices, what I think is possible, 
is that these are going to be a memorial reminder to those generations born during the millennium of Christ's sacrifice. You think about it. You know, after the, after the rapture of the church and after the tribulation, and now we have this time of great peace and prosperity and everything's just wonderful. And uh, these generations of these people are going to be born during that time, never knowing what it was like before. And they could get very complacent, possibly. You know, it's like when the generation of Israelites, the children of Israel, you know, they went through the wilderness. They saw God deliver them mightily. They saw all the miracles that God did, and they came into the land. And when you read in the book of Judges, it says that, you know, Joshua and all his generation, all those people that saw God's, what God did, they'd passed away. And there was a new generation that rose up that didn't remember. And they forgot, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes because they had forgot about God. And so it's possible, and I'm not saying that that's thus saith the Lord, but it's possible that during the during those generate or during that millennium those generations they may take for granted Christ's sacrifice without being reminded of it and so seeing these animals slaughtered might just be a memorial a reminder to them you know again you can study it and look at it and and come up with a different opinion about it i don't think anyone you know knows for sure but that's my take on it you know it's interesting the millennium, you study the millennium, and as we go through Ezekiel, and we'll get into some of the minor prophets here shortly, there's a lot of fascinating scriptures that talk about the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. And uh, at the end of the thousand-year reign, the Bible says that there's going to be one more worldwide rebellion against God. And at that time, the devil and his angels were going to be cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet were th- placed there a thousand years earlier at the end of the tribulation. And at that time, the unbelieving dead will be resurrected to stand before God at the white throne judgment. And the Bible says in 20 verse 15 of Revelation, and anyone not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And then you get into the next chapter, and it says, then there will be, in the time about in Revelation 21, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and new Jerusalem is going to descend out of heaven and Revelation twenty one twenty two tells us, as John seeing this new Jerusalem coming into you know this new heaven and new, new earth and new Jerusalem, he notices that there's no temple. So this temple, I believe, only exists in the millennium. And uh, the reason why it says, but I in Revelation twenty one twenty two it says, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So it's just interesting, fascinating stuff. But going back to the sacrifices in the millennium. Like I said, I believe it will be a memorial reminder to the people of Christ's sacrifice for sin. Um, You know, it might be, and it's probably still hard to kind of wrap your brain around it, um, but you think about the Jews when the church started in Jerusalem after Jesus ascended into heaven, after the day of Pentecost when the church was born the Jews who became Christians in the book of Acts, they still went to the temple. You, you know that? They did. Uh, you look through the book of Acts. Uh, in uh, Acts 2.46, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. When Peter and John were on their way and they healed the, the lame man, it says in chapter 3, you know, they were on their way to the temple to pray. 
In Acts 5.42, it says, And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You might say, well, that was just at the beginning of the, of, the, of the book of Acts. Well, you get towards the end of the book of Acts, and Paul, before he's imprisoned, he's, on, he's rushing to get back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And he actually has an offering that he wants to offer in the temple. And, you know, of course... Those Christians, as they're still celebrating, you know, they're, they're still going to the temple. They, they look at those sacrifices and the things that are going on and they, they go, man, it just means so much more now because now I understand that's a picture of Jesus. You know, we had, a, we had a gentleman here in our church, and some of you know him, and he was a Jewish guy, and he went to synagogue and everything, and he got saved. And the Bible just ju- came alive to him, and he was, it was fun to listen to because he had all these unique Jewish perspectives on the things in, in the Bible that all of a sudden it made sense to him. And so, um, you know, I think that's the same case with the Christians in the early church. They understood that those sacrifices, they didn't, they didn't take care of sin because Jesus Christ did it. But nonetheless, they did it. And, you know, you think about it, too. Um, they didn't burn bridges with their families and their loved ones. Because, you know, sometimes, you know, we become Christians. We get this understanding or whatever, this, this new realization through the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit reveals things to us. And sometimes we can get this self-righteous attitude, you know, with our family members. And, uh, and, and you know, I think... You know, I, I think, of course, listen to the Holy Spirit, you know, and do what you feel the Lord's telling you to do and be in prayer about it. But, you know, sometimes, you know, we need to be careful on, on how we how we handle those things. So be led by the Spirit in those areas. Well, moving right along as we're getting close to wrapping up. Verse 44, outside the inner gate were three cha- uh, there were chambers for the singers in the inner court, one facing south, uh, one facing south at the side of the northern gateway and the other facing north at the side of the southern gateway. Then he said to me, This chamber which faces south is for the priests who have charge of the temple. The chamber which faces the north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok from the sons of Levi who come near to the Lord to minister to him. Uh, so there's going to be there's a chamber for singers, and they're probably singing while these sacrifices are taking place. And uh, you know they're rejoicing as they're seeing man, they're seeing the representation of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for them. Now in Ezekiel chapter forty verses forty seven through forty nine, we get uh, the dimensions of the inner court of the vestibule. It says, and he measured the court. Uh, 100 cubits long, 100 cubits wide, four square. The altar was in front of the temple. Then he brought me to the vestibule of the temple and measured the door posts of the vestibule, five cubits on this side, five cubits on that side. And the width of the gateway was three cubits on this side and three cubits on that side. The length of the vestibule was 20 cubits and the width 11 cubits. And by the steps which were led up to it, there were pillars by the door posts, one on this side and one on the other side. I'm going to kind of just move through here. Uh, chapter 41, verse 1. Then he brought me into the sanctuary and measured the doorpost, six cubits wide on one side and six cubits wide on the other side, the width of the tabernacle. The width of the entry was ten cubits, and the side walls of the entrance were five cubits on this side, five cubits on the other side. And he measured its length, forty cubits 
its width and uh, 40, its length 40 cubits and its width 20 cubits. So this is inside that sanctuary there. Verse 3, also he went inside and measured the doorpost, two cubits and the entrance six cubits high and the width of the entrance seven cubits. He measured the length 20 cubits and the width 20 cubits beyond the sanctuary. And he said to me, this is the holy place. Next, he measured the wall of the temple, six cubits. The width of each side chamber all around the temple was four cubits on every side. The side chambers were in three stories, one above the other, 30 chambers in each story. They rested on ledges, which were for the side chambers all around, that they might not, but that might be supported, but not fastened to the wall of the temple. So this graphic here is basically showing kind of a cutaway view of these chambers that are running along the outside. Well, they're inside, uh, but they're... You know, they're within the outer wall of the, uh, of the sanctuary in the temple. As one went up from story to story, these side chambers became wider all around because their supporting ledges in the wall of the temple ascended like steps. Therefore, the width of the structure increased as one went up from the lowest story to the highest by, the, by way of the middle one. Do you know before they did computer graphics, people just like... They were scratching their heads like, what is he talking about? But as they plugged in all these numbers, they realized Ezekiel wasn't, he hadn't lost his mind. You know, he wasn't eating something or smoking something. It was, it actually, you know, there's a structure that's being described there. I saw an elevation all around the temple. It was the foundation of the side chambers, a full rod that is six cubits high. The thickness of the outer wall of the side chambers was five cubits. And so also the remaining terrace by the place of the side chambers of the temple. And between it and the wall chambers was a width of 20 cubits all around the temple on every side. The doors of the side chambers opened on the terrace, one toward the north, one another toward the south, and the width of the terrace was five cubits all around. The building that faced the separating courtyard at its western end was 75 it was 70 cubits wide. The wall of the building was five cubits thick all around, and its length 90 cubits. You know, we're not told what the purpose of this building is, but it exists there. It's on the west side. So he measured the temple 100 cubits long, and the separating courtyard with the building and its wall was 100 cubits long. Also, the width of the eastern face of the temple, including the separating courtyard, was 100 cubits. He measured the length of the building behind it, facing the separating courtyard, with its galleries on the one side. I apologize for reading fast, but I'm trying to get through this. <laughs> 100 cubits as well as the inner temple and the porches of the court, their doorposts and their beveled window frames. And the galleries all around their three stories Opposite the threshold were paneled with wood from the ground to the windows. The windows were covered from the space above the door, even to the inner room, as well as the outside, and on every wall all all around, inside and outside by measure. And it was made with cherub. Now he's talking about inside the, the sanctuary. And it was made with cherubim and palm trees. A palm tree between each cherub, or between cherub and cherub. Each cherub had two faces. So that the face of a man was toward a palm tree on one side, the face of a lion toward the palm tree on the other side. Thus it was made throughout the temple all around, from the floor to the space above the door, and on the wall of the sanctuary, cherubim and palm trees were carved. 
The doorposts of the temple were square, as was the front of the sanctuary, and their appearance was similar. The altar was of wood three cubits high, and its length two cubits. Its corners, its length, and its sides were of wood. And he said to me, This is the table that is before the Lord. Now, in chapters 42, 1 through 14, and I'm not going to read through it, he gives the measurements of the priest chambers. And I, I put this slide back up, and uh, I'm going to try that John Madden thing again. The priest chambers are right there is what he's talking about. Those are the priest chambers. And uh, since none of us, are any of you the sons of Zadok descended from him? Nobody? Okay, so um, you don't need to know the exact dimension. You can go home and, and read about it if you are, but... Uh, I'm not going to read through the dimensions just to spare you that. Not that it's not good to read. It's God's word. But uh. So verse 15. Now when he had finished measuring the inner temple, he brought me out through the gateway that faces toward the east and measured it all around. He measured the east side with the measuring rod, 500 rods by the measuring rod all around. He measured the north side, 500 rods by the measuring rod all around. He measured the south side, 500 rods by the measuring rod. He came around to the west side and measured 500 rods by the measuring rod. He measured it on the four sides. It had a wall all around, 500 cubits long, 500 wide to separate the holy areas from the common. Some people go, you know, this, the copyists must have made a typo because how could it be that big, 500 rods square? Um, but the problem is then the copyists would have made like six errors <laughs> through the scriptures. Through the, so it's, it's not a typo. It's not, a, it's not a, a, a copyist error. But think about this, 500 rods square, 500 times 10.5 feet, that's almost one square mile, almost a square mile. The old city of Jerusalem today is almost that size. So when you put it in your mind and you go, well, this temple complex, and this is probably talking about like a, you know, maybe it's a park-like setting or something around this complex that, that Ezekiel was describing. It's huge. And it can exist today in, in the Temple Mount. And so um, if you take it literally as I do, this has to take place in the millennium when the landscape's going to be much different than it is today. Now, kind of wrapping it up here, can you imagine how this vision would have affected Ezekiel? Remember, Ezekiel was a priest, born into a, a line of priests, and uh, putting yourself into Ezekiel's sandals, um, you know, here he had been born and raised to be a priest in Israel, to serve in the temple. And at some point, uh, when he turned 30 years old, and that was the age when priests enter into service in the temple. And it's, you know, all his life he's been preparing for this time to serve in the temple. And uh, he's 30 years old and he's in Babylon. And not too many years later, the temple's destroyed. And he had never had a chance to fulfill what he had been born and raised to do. Think about how that would have impacted Ezekiel to have this vision of this temple given. You know, you think about what it would have meant to Ezekiel personally. And God said, take what you see now and share it and tell the captives along about it. Um, again, God is giving those captives hope. And, and, you know, it's not a vague hope. And that's why I think God gave them all these instructions. The, the, you know, we went through some very minute and almost painstaking, almost painful 
dimensions and stuff. And you wonder and you go, why did God do it? And I think the reason why is God was giving them a specific promise. And God's word is faithful. And he says, this is this this is a real temple, Ezekiel. Measure it. Take a look at it. This is what's going to exist. And you're going to be there serving in that place and at that time. Now, just to wrap up a couple things here, there's a few things missing from this temple that we just described um, that was in previous temples. And you know what they were? Josephus talks about it, the Roman historian, uh, Jewish historian, excuse me. There wasn't a court of the Gentiles, and there wasn't a court of the women. Um, In the old temples, they had those courts where a woman could only go so far, they couldn't go into where the men went. The Gentiles could only go so far. They couldn't go in further beyond that. But in Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Man, we're all one here. There's no one better than anybody else. There's no one closer to God than anyone else. We're all one here at the foot of the cross. And there's another thing missing from that holy place, and that is there's no veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies. And that existed in the other temples and in the tabernacle. Why? Because Jesus Christ tore down that barrier for between sinful man and a holy God. He made it possible for you and I to approach a holy God because we couldn't approach him in our sin. But now, because Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin, we can, the Bible says, man, we can boldly go into the throne of grace to receive help in time of trouble. He can boldly go before the Father.